Exodus 31, starting in verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Let's pray. God, we ask your blessing upon your word. Here we have record of you writing it with your very finger. We ask now that your spirit would use it Give life and light in our hearts to your word, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. You know those foods, and we call them acquired tastes, but more than simply acquired taste, it's usually more of a taste that's connected to age, it seems like. I mean, you think about, for some of you, it's coffee. You remember when you were a kid and the first time you tasted it, it was like, oh, what is this? It's burnt. But then as you get older, it's like, man, I can do this. And then I like this. And then I might need this. Others, it might be tomatoes. I've actually come to the conclusion. The problem with my taste buds is they never made it past that development. The growing of maturing all the foods that I don't like that I should. But the things that maybe when you first got it, you're like, I don't think I really enjoy this. But as you age, you come to appreciate the excellency of whatever that food is. As you mature, you realize it's good for you and it's delightful and it's delicious. That same sort of relationship, it seems to have, uh, it happens in relationship to sleep. Right? Some of us, when we were kids, we were like, nah, I don't need sleep. Who needs sleep? You're never going to get it. Who needs sleep? I don't want it anyways. I'm out. No thanks. And then as you get a little bit older, you're like, you know, I think I like naps. I think I like them a lot. And then you get a little bit older and you're like, what do you want for your birthday? I want a nap. It's all I want for my birthday. And then as you get maybe a little bit older, you begin to have that love-hate relationship with sleep where it's all you really want, but it never seems to show up. 
It is intriguing, though, how in both of these illustrations, when we're kind of immature, we don't realize the benefits and the blessings of these activities. We don't realize how wonderful coffee is or how excellent tomatoes are or shrimp and how awesome shrimp is. Or we don't like naps. We reject them, repudiate them, resent them until we get more mature and then we long for them. I suspect for many Christians, the Sabbath could be included in that list of things that as we are spiritual children or physical children, we don't particularly enjoy. But then as we either grow more physically tired or more spiritually mature, we come to have a greater appreciation of what God is doing in his Sabbath. This section here, again, rerun sermon, we've had a number of these in Exodus, is a section that is not entirely word for word from a previous part of the book, but very similar with a couple of key additions. God is restating his view of the Sabbath to Moses and to Israel and reminding them and re-educating them in connection to it. It's actually weird to think about. You may not have realized this. Out of all of the Ten Commandments, do you know which one receives the most common treatment in the Scriptures? It's this one. It's the Sabbath. It's weird. That one actually gets talked about more than uh, no other gods. It gets talked about more than not having graven images. It gets talked about more than not murdering. It is of the ten. It is the most frequently addressed of them all. In fact, actually, it makes sense that it would show up again at the end of this section. You remember where we are in the book. You have to have a little bit of review in order to understand the the importance of what's taking place. God has brought them onto the mountain. He's revealed himself to them. He's given them the ten biggies that they are to remember and celebrate forever as those ten commandments are a reflection of his character, as are all the laws, but that's the moral law. And then he's given them other stuff and a large part connected to his holy tabernacle. The place where he would live, the place that he would reside on earth. And it has all of the intense building construction list and the bars that are going to be made out of gold. Come, you know, the wood covered in gold and all of the various things, the blue and purple and scarlet yarn a million times over. And here in the first part of chapter 31, he's provided the two guys, Bezalel and Aholiab, to be the two men who are going to lead the work project on this. And you can imagine Israel's response. It's the same kind of response that you had you know, when your boss came to you and he said, look, I know you have this much time in your job description. They never say it this clearly, but I wish they did. And I'm only going to give you a project this big. I know that you don't have time to do it, but you're going to do it anyways. And what's the immediate thought that most people think is, well, I'm going to have to work overtime. I'm going to be working on this nights. I'm going to be working on this weekends. I'm going to be working on this all of the time. I'm never going to get away from it. And you think maybe Israel's kind of probably had that same sort of response. Here, the great and scary God, remember we're on the mountain with the lightning and the thunder and the scary. He's just given them this massive building project to build him his house. It is so particular, it even is down to the clothes and the type of underwear you have to wear when you go into it. 
That is particular. I mean, we all have had that family friend. Maybe it was your parents' family friend that maintained their house in that particular fashion. I remember the one growing up as a child going to where they had not only the plastic covers on all of the furniture, but they had the plastic covers covering all of the walkways in the house so that you never actually touched anything that wasn't encased in plastic. You're like, man, they're particular. Maybe you have that same impression if you're an Israelite at this point, that God's house is very particular. And it is because he is a holy God. He gets to determine that arrangement. And now you have to build it. And you go, man, are we gonna, how, how are we going to do this? How are we ever going to finish building this thing? I mean, how are we going to get it done? Well, you know what? Maybe we work nights. Maybe we work weekends. I'm sure God won't mind if we use his Sabbath to build his house. And interestingly here, God ends this entire section with that brief reminder. Oh, yes, by the way. The Sabbath still matters. The Sabbath still matters. Matthew Henry in this section calls it the hem and hedge of the entire law. It is the center point of God's law for Israel. A couple of things are added into this section uh, that uh, highlight the distinction here and kind of uh, should be talked about and noted. First and foremost, that's the uh, part that maybe jumped out to us the most, is that the Lord loves the Sabbath so much that he attached the highest censure or discipline to it. He loves the Sabbath so much that what happens to men and women, boys and girls who violate it in the passage? Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. We've known that. That's been laid out clearly in this book repeatedly already. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. It's kind of traditionally viewed, not just in the scriptures, even in government and homes and everything else, that the consequence of breaking a law helps you understand the importance of that law. If you have no consequence to a law, it helps you understand the person who wrote the law doesn't even care. They don't care one ounce. It's not important, doesn't matter. If it's uh, a law that sounds big, but the consequence is very small, you would say, well, maybe they care a little bit. But for things where the big, big, big consequences are had. I remember this one from my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother had a family policy that if she saw anybody grab any of the pieces of food before they were served and before they were prayed for, that dish never got served. Ever. So like if you uh, walked by, uh, my family would go very hungry, Uh, if you walked by and you grabbed a piece of the roast beef, the roast beef 
never got served. And I'm not talking like later that afternoon. I'm talking sometimes it got given away, like given away to other folks. Like you did not eat the food that was not served and was not prayed for. Her name was Mama Hawk. For Mama Hawk, that was a hill worth dying on. When you went to her house, guess what? You didn't pick off the food before it was served. Because she communicated very clearly that was a big deal to her. Your favorite food, you just can't help it. You grab a cucumber when you walk by. Sorry. Now, some of you, maybe you want to grab a Brussels sprout when it goes by so that you never have to mess with them ever again because they never make it to the table. Here the Lord is communicating to us himself. He's communicating his values. He's communicating what's important to him. He sees the Sabbath so important, he's willing to put the injunction of death on those that violate it. My friends, that is a serious serious issue. Another way to see that is God values this so very highly, so important to him that he's willing to couple death with it. We're going to see this show up in our Nehemiah Bible study uh, at the end in just a matter of weeks. How it's so important to him that you didn't do it. You didn't skip out on this when you didn't violate it. It just doesn't matter that much. Well, that begs the question, okay, why is it so important? Why is it so important to God that he's willing to kill his people for it? And again, I love asking that question kind of any time in Scripture where you see God uh, putting fatal discipline on his children. Why is the Lord's Supper so important that God was killing the Corinthian church for doing it incorrectly? Why here is the Sabbath so important that the Lord is promising death for those that violate it, implied even those that violate it to build his tabernacle? Well, the other thing that's kind of highlighted in this one that shows up at the beginning at the end is how he connects this with the idea of a sign. It's a word that's added in here that we get to see its function a little bit more clearly. Look in verse 13. You're to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. It's this new visible physical reminder that God is doing something. It's the same sort of language that we would see with the rainbow. Remember how that was given, how the, the rainbow is placed in the sky and the Lord communicates to Noah, this is going to be a reminder for you and all the generations that come after you. It's a reminder, a sign of the promise that I have given that never again am I going to destroy the world by water. I'll do it by fire next time, not water. It'll burn. So that every time they could look out when it rained and see the rainbow and be reminded of what God has done and is doing and will do. Now, that was a reminder of a covenant that doesn't happen, uh, wasn't done that frequently. Flood the world once, fire is going to consume it at the end once. It's not something you're going to see happen all, all, all the time. Here we have actually given something, a sign that's to be enacted every week. In fact, actually a sign that's enacted whether or not you keep it. That the one day in seven has been set from the very creation of the world until the end. Pointing to something bigger. 
And we're going to highlight two things here that it points to. First, in verse 13, what is it a sign? It's a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I'll be honest with you, as I was looking through the passage and going, man, this is the same kind of thing. This is the one that is just like, what? The part that the Lord does that, like, man... He is so wise. I would not have seen this one coming if I was planning on it. You would think that God would have it set as a sign to show you that he is holy or a sign to show you that he is at work in creation or a sign to show you that he's faithful because it happens every week. Instead, what is it a sign? Here in this verse, it's a physical reminder in the calendar every week that God is in the business of making you holy. That God is in the business of sanctifying you. I love that. I mean, to think about for those of us that really have tender consciences and struggle with our sin or those that struggle with the sin that you did when you were in seventh grade and you can't seem to let it go for whatever reason, or for those of us that struggle with those lies of the devil, those whisperings that condemn us, the Lord is giving us one day in seven to remind us every week that he's not done with you yet. And what is the work that he's doing in you? It's not your destruction. It is you being made holy. I mean, if we were going to be a bit poetic about it, you could even potentially see it as the idea of he's preparing us to be in that tabernacle presence. That building that's being accomplished to symbolize his physical presence among them, his spiritual presence in their physical location He's preparing us to be in his presence. And it's interesting, too, because not only is it this sign that that showcases this, but it's also the thing that is used to accomplish it. How the Lord uses his day to perfect his people when done correctly. We'll get to that in a moment. Secondly, the second reason why it's so such a big deal, why he attaches the death penalty to it, is that it is a sign, verse 17, forever between me and the people of Israel, that the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and he was refreshed. It's this reminder inside creation that the Lord himself keeps the Sabbath. And we should too. That the Lord himself used this seventh day to catch his breath. That's what the refreshed actually means. It's to catch his breath. It's not that he was weak or weary, because the Lord can never be those things, but that he caught his breath from the work of uh, the activity of creation to be refreshed, to be what we would say kind of energized, though that would be a very human word that can't fully describe him. It's a sign of what God has done, a, a reminder of God's commitment, a reminder of God's creation. 
And further on that, it's this reminder within the covenant of God's people so that he has pledged himself to his people and his people to him. Again, this visible portrait of God's activity. It begs the question then of, okay, if that's what it, it, God has set it aside as something so powerful, so important that it has uh, fatality connected to it. And the reasoning for that is because it is a sign of what God is doing in you and in creation. How then should we keep the Sabbath? How then should we honor it? And the middle section highlights this. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. So highlighted first is the work aspect. Uh, Six days shall work be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest holy to the Lord. It's a rest from work. Now, this is intriguing because so many times when you have conversations with folks about the Sabbath, they're like, well, I know the Sabbath is a day of rest. I rest from sin. I don't think you've really caught the purpose of the Lord's Day. If it's like, I'm okay to sin on the other days, but this is the day where I shouldn't. I curse like a sailor all the other days, but this is the day where I I use my church language. Or I know I haven't read my Bible in a month of Sundays, but on the Lord's Day, that's when I actually... No, that's the wrong way to approach the Sabbath. It's not resting from evil deeds. It's actually resting from normal life toward the heavenly life. I think this is one of the aspects of the Sabbath that people have so misunderstood and in many ways robbed themselves of the benefit of it is to define the Sabbath as music a day like a slug. What does it mean? Well, I go to church in the morning, and then the rest of the day I turn into a slug. And I just sit there, and I do nothing. Suddenly I try to mirror Jabba the Hutt, and I just blah for the rest of the day. Maybe, depending on how hard I have blah, I might get up in the evening, I might not. I mean, I'll be honest, that's part of my college career. That's exactly what it was. It was a day of doing nothing. And that's a misunderstanding of what the day is. The day is a day of resting from things and resting to things. From and toward. It's resting from normal, ordinary life. If we were to go to that Isaiah passage, did you catch it in verse 13? If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, your business on my holy day. If you honor it by not going your own ways, seeking your own pleasure or talking idly. None of those things are, maybe the talking idly, but none of those things are inherently evil things. It's not like on that day if you just rested from murdering people. Well, no, you shouldn't do that anyways. It's resting from an activity, but also resting toward an activity. Resting from uh, the normal, ordinary life that we live, the work that we are commanded to do. Also being reminded that work is something commanded prior to the fall. Resting from an holy activity toward a different one. Resting toward God's service. Resting toward God's presence. Resting towards 
obedience to him. And I love how we get to see this so perfectly fulfilled in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. When he shows up, it's noted throughout the Gospels. A very great percentage of his ministry is conducted on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath. And what what do you catch him doing? You catch him walking with his disciples where he's teaching them the scriptures. You catch him instructing them in how they're supposed to live. You catch him ministering to people, healing the sick, taking care of the weak and wounded and weary. So much so that the Pharisees get grumpy about it. Oh, you're working on the Sabbath. You can't do that. What's Jesus' answer? Guys, you've missed it. You Pharisees have reduced the Sabbath to a do-nothing day. They had measured out the number of steps you were allowed to walk before it became sin. Jesus is like, no, that's not the point. The point is not that Sunday, Saturday for them, had become a do-nothing day. That was a gross misunderstanding. It was a do-something very important day. It was a day set aside to honor the Lord, to worship Him to spend time in his presence. I suspect actually also this is why it is so important to God is because there's no actual thing that is a clearer portrait of what the life to come will be like. It's that weekly reminder of heaven of what it will be like when we go to glory. And again, now, thinking about this, going back to that opening illustration with the foods that you don't understand until you're more mature, some of us go, well, man, if that's what heaven's like, I'm not sure I want it. I mean, I know as a kid that I had those weeks where we would think that way. I'm not sure I, I want heaven if that's what heaven is like. Because it's doing nothing. And then only church. <laughs> no. It's doing something very important. It's being in God's presence. It does then beg the question for us. How do we put this passage into action in our lives? Well, first and foremost, we can be grateful to the Lord Jesus. Because anytime we see a command that has a fatality connected to it when it's not kept, uh, I love reading those because it normally takes me about mm, one time to go back and think about how I violated that last time. You know, how many times this month have you violated this command to keep the Sabbath holy? By the way, it's September 1st. This month alone, how many times have you violated this? You've had approximately nine and a half hours to do it. A number of times, haven't you? We shouldn't be here. We should all be dead so we can celebrate that the Lord Jesus has paid this consequence for us on the cross, that he has satisfied the wrath of God so that we need not fear the grave over this. But secondly, as we can begin to adopt God's own values, this is something that's important to him. It should therefore be important to me. I mean, think about that for those that have siblings or uh, married. Think about with your spouse or your, your dearest friends. Think about how many things you have in part of your relationship where you honestly don't care about it at all. But because it's important to them, 
it becomes important to you. Even if you don't think the Sabbath is important, you're wrong, but even if you don't, God does. So we ought to as well. And then finally, again, to think about it as a a visible reminder, you, you think about how we have the order of worship structured every week. Well, except for communion Sundays. Where it always has a confession of sin and assurance of pardon. You realize that's in essence what the, the Sabbath is for the saint? It is a physical, visible reminder of that assurance of pardon. That if you are in Christ, your calendar tells you that God's not done with you yet. And he's going to perfect you. Your calendar tells you it's a sign that God is going to sanctify you, to prepare you for heaven. May it be that even this day, as we go from this place, some of you uh, in the next little bit, some of you much later today, like me, that we use this day not as a resting of do nothing, but a resting from our normal labors and to those heavenly ones. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for passages like this. We have to be honest, make us a little bit uncomfortable because it tells us what to do and it's not what we want to do sometimes. We confess our sin, that we are rebellious at heart. Oh, we are rebellious at heart. And this day, every week, showcases that. Thank you for Jesus who pays for our sins. It's in his name we pray. Amen.